Chapter 6. Do you think that you'll solve either or both of these? <laughs> hate to bet. Hate to, hate to invest any money in it, but but would really hope to. Well, the way you'll do is if you do, you yeah. try, yeah. it's not going to be solved. If it is solved with the internet, with, with evidence today, with, with um, forensics, if it's possible, these guys will solve it. And of course, one of the problems is if they're unconnected, we may wind up solving one and not the other. So that, that would be kind of frustrating too. From 11alive.com, Tegna Media, and the Gone Cold series, I'm Jessica Knoll. This is Five Roses. You see it over and over again, dealing with the families. What could be more horrible than losing a family member to a murder of, of, of some kind like that? You know, to have their life taken forcibly, and you know they know that their child or sister or brother or whoever went through that. You know, their last moments of life. And like I say, you know, it drives me trying to find you know who did because they belong, you know, being locked up for the rest of their lives at the very least. It's different today too. Cause Growing up, like most of us in the 60s and 70s, you know, we saw mainly about the Vietnam on the news and all. You didn't see murders and stuff like that much. And like you say, this hit Atlanta hard. Nowadays, every day you turn on the news, there's a murder. And they don't take it like they used to. Nowadays, it's just an everyday life. Two or three people get killed a night, seems like in Atlanta, and it just goes on to the next one. I don't know. Sitting in the basement of the East Point Police Department, the task force gathers for pizza, cookies, and good chatter. About cold cases, more to the point about Mary and Diane's cases. The skeptic, the voice of reason of the task force is profiler Greg Moffat. He explains not only who killed Diane and snatched Mary, but why and how. Moffitt teaches at Point University and works on cases with the FBI and the Atlanta police, among others. His profiles for cases he's worked have been typically spot on. My name is uh, Gregory Moffitt. I am a psychologist and criminal profiler. I've worked as a lecturer at the FBI Academy for nine or ten years. Um, I worked with the Cold Case Squad as long as they were in existence in Atlanta for, I don't know, how many years? Um, that's how I got connected to this case. When my original introduction in the cold case squad, I was working a specific case, and then as I'd be working that in the office, somebody else would come around with one of their cases, hey, would you take a look at this? And this one thing led to another. In this case, because it was fairly complicated, um, I actually saw it in pieces originally because I was asked to look at the um, Shotwell Little piece of it originally because a guy had confessed. He'd been uh, arrested. I don't know if you've seen that material. Is that in 1994? Or? Uh, I think it's a little later than that. It could have been. Okay. But anyway, he didn't. It was a bogus confession. It was a jailhouse thing for status. He didn't do it. But no, that, that's, that's a different one then, yeah. Yeah, that was my job on that one was did the guy actually do it? And Glenn, who's also working on this case, is the one who brought that to me and said, hey, would you take a look? Um, and then from there, I ended up looking at both cases and was looking at the question, are they together or not? Sitting inside a boardroom at Point University in Peachtree City, it's quiet. School's out for the summer. 
Greg tells me with great certainty that he does not believe that Mary and Diane faced the same assailant. Well, there were certainly similarities in the case, and that's where I started with my summary. You know, here's why it looks like they could be combined. And one of the things that happens, and this is a background on cold cases in general, um, this happened to me throughout my career working with these cases. When people don't know who did what, they get stuck in cold case files, sometimes a literal file, sometimes a box or whatever. And things that gets, that are similar, oh, like I did five old women that were killed in very brutal ways. Of those five, four of them were almost identical. One was not. It didn't mean that that, wasn't, that one wasn't included, but there were enough similarities that got thrown in the pool. As I looked at it from a profiler's perspective, it became evident to me the same way here. Sure, they were all old ladies. They had these things in common, but it wasn't the same perpetrator. And it turns out that one, I was validated. I was right. We ended up with some... Uh, DNA on various cases, it wasn't the same problem. So it's not uncommon that cases get thrown together. This one's so intriguing because these women paralleled seemingly in so many ways, but you're gonna remember this was 1964, 1965, and the world we live in today was not that world. So it's it sounds really amazing. They lived in the same apartment, had the same roommates. Well. That happened all the time in those days. You know, you're a young college lady, you just get out of school, you're gonna, you get your first job. It was super common for four or five people to share an apartment. Somebody moves out, somebody else moves in. There's nothing bizarre about that. That happened all the time. And the reason we don't think about it today is because we don't really live that way anymore. Um, mysterious phone calls, well, Let's follow you around all day. And how many phone calls do you get? Well, she was talking to somebody, and, and she kind of whispered. And as long as nothing happens to you, nobody thinks of it. Well, if something happens to you, and, oh, she was whispering, and it just sounds so wild. Well, there's very simple explanations. And the principle of Oakham's razor, which you've probably heard of many times, the simplest explanation is usually the more likely one. So... Uh, the similarities in the cases, I'm confident that all of them can be very simply explained, not, not even as coincidence, almost as expectancies. Very small community. We think of Lenox today, super crowded. You can't drive across Lenox parking lot in that half an hour. Well, back then, it was a strip mall, basically, and it was uh, very, well, suburban Atlanta, basically. Um, very small community, not unusual people's paths should cross. So in terms of the similarities, that's very explainable. The differences, though, are stark, and absolutely, I'm confident, I think you heard in the, the meeting we had together, I think everybody else is on the same page with this. Uh, it's not the same perpetrator, there's just no way. I've seen hundreds of homicides in this process, hundreds of them, and sometimes you look at things and like, eh, like those five old women, for example. Four of the old women were strangled, and the, the fifth was brutally beaten. I mean, she was just brutalized, um, stabbed several times. I mean, clearly different method. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not connected, but people talk about themselves in their behaviors. So your tattoos, your clothes that you wear, the way you wear your hair, all of that serves some purpose. It says something, you know. What it says is irrelevant, and ordinary relationship, but it does say something. So if I came to your house and wobbled around for a while, I'd learn a lot about you because the pictures that are on the wall and the books you have on the bookshelf or whatever, well, it says things about you. 
and crime is very much the same. And interestingly, because I work with children, my clinical practice, people find that such a bizarre combination, you know, with four or five-year-olds, saying Trey and homicide, but they're exactly the same process. Those kids are talking to me through the behaviors that they exhibit. And criminals are talking to me through the tools that they use, the time of the day, the things that they say, because perpetrators that, that whose victims survive, I'm like, well, he kept calling me mom or whatever. Those things mean something. Um, what it means tells us something about what the person's trying to accomplish, and, and that's where I think I mentioned in our, our meeting the other day that's the difference between MO and signature. That signature is what that perpetrator is trying to accomplish. So with this case, the signature of the Diane Shields case is just crystal clear. This was a violent, angry, impulsive, impatient, young perpetrator. There's just no doubt about it. And regardless of the profile of the other guy, he was patient, slow, experienced, probably older. I mean, very sure of himself. Um, there's just no way. He to can't get any further apart no, for the two. No. Mm-hmm. Now, where I think we're, we're definitely on different pages, the crew of us, um, several people in that room are of the opinion that they're related, not that it's the same perpetrator, but they're related in that both of them were killed for similar reasons. Just different perpetrators committed those homicides. And that's certainly possible, and I don't want to be a wet blanket on the program. I I don't know. I think it would make for a great show. I think it's unlikely, but that's just my opinion. I have nothing to base that on other than the probability of it being so. Um, all of the talk about embezzlement of the bank and scamming and all that potential issues, I, it just most of it just doesn't hold water to me. And especially if you look at, look at it in the picture of gossip, which much of the information we have now 40-some years later is recollection of recollection of recollection. All the research and memory is clear. Even if I ask you tomorrow what you did today, your memory's going to be flawed. The further you get away from that episode, the, the more flawed it is. And so, oh, you know, we think there was... This, this or that going on in the bank, or I don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it isn't so. It just it lacks credibility to me. In the case of Diane Shields, she was she was just brutalized. Her ear was nearly severed. I mean, she was hit so hard. Um, things were stuffed down her throat. I think it was two different items were were retrieved from her throat. She was bound. She was basically tied up like bundle old newspapers in the old days. I used to do that stuff in the trunk of her car. That, that's indicative of someone who lacks patience. Generally, perpetrators over time get better at their crimes, especially if they're sexual crimes, as opposed to getting worse. Now, sometimes they do get more violent. Um, but I suspect at the outset, she wasn't alive an hour from the time she was abducted. And I think it was very probable she was abducted from the moment she got in her car. She got slammed in the head, that got her attention, he did his business, and within a half an hour she was dead. 
sticking things down someone's throat, there's a, a phallic nature to that. Um, there's also a you can't talk to me nature to that. Shut up. Why? She was probably incapacitated already other than maybe crying. Um, it, that's a signature piece. You can't talk. I'll show you how much you can't talk. As opposed to the more patient shot well little situation, which we'll talk about the guy that tried to abduct the lady earlier in the evening. His scam didn't work, he didn't run away. Well, we'll try again. No fear of, well, this person might call the police. That takes some cojones to, to do that. You know, most of us couldn't commit a crime, fail, and commit a similar crime in the same place because we would just be so afraid of being caught. So this is somebody who's done it before. They're very comfortable in that area. As opposed to our other guy who's, let me show you who's boss from the get-go. I'm going to take something from you and I'm going to take it right now. Now there's not evidence that she was sexually assaulted that I recall. Um, it doesn't mean that he didn't try, but one of the underlying um, needs in rape is to take. It's, and people say it's not about sex. Sex is the medium of taking. One of the most personal things a person can do to someone else, short of molesting them in the face, you know, slapping them or spitting on them here, um, is to mistreat them sexually. I don't think anything was taken from Diane. Um, so would would you think that the motive is just violence? Yes. Pure violence? Yes, and that, that's exactly the question that we have to ask. If something had been taken, well, then that puts it in, well, was this a robbery with grace, uh, rape as the gratuitous side thing? Was this rape the, with robbery as a uh, sideshow to distract? When, which is another thing that tells me this was just a very inexperienced, angry perpetrator. He's got to be young because that kind of violence, you don't get away with that for very long. Eventually, you scream at the wrong person and you either get killed or arrested. So the fact that it was just explosive is indicative of the fact that nothing else was taken, that he didn't want anything else. Do you think that it was personal? Well, not in the way you mean. Um, and that's the debate that we're all having. I can't say that it wasn't personal, but I don't see anything that makes it clear that it would have been. Okay, so, uh, I mean, even the most inept detectives could have looked at the case and said, well, did the husband do it or something like that. I think it's more likely it was a crime of convenience. Why would someone stuff her in her own trunk as opposed to just dumping her body somewhere? Lack of planning. In the old days, and they still use this phraseology a little bit, but if you look at the original profiling research um, that Burgess and Ressler and those guys did, they divided all serial crimes into two arenas, organized and disorganized. And the organized folks, for simplicity's sake, it's not a simple bit. Basically, they're folks who plan it out. You know, they bring their own tools and try to get away. The disorganized people come in, make a mess of stuff, leave their wallet laying on the table or something. It's not quite that simple. The, the, the data they were working with made it look that way at the time, but it's not. But I think in generalities, we can look at those two things the way they intended. 
And this is a guy that would fall in the disorganized category. He didn't know what he was going to do. All he knew is he was going to show some woman how it is. So the fact that he stuffed her in his car or in her car, he could have chucked her off the side of the road. It would have said the same thing. He could have taken her home, stuck him, stuffed her in a garbage bin. I mean, how she was disposed of, those three things would have similarities enough that would say, signature-wise, she's trash. So it doesn't really matter to me that she was stuffed in her car. It's all saying to me he, he didn't have any idea what he was going to do when he was done. Oh, gosh, she's dead. Okay, I'll stick her in the trunk, and I'll run away. Oh, here's a car. I'll steal a car. That's, that's what I think happened. Now, shifting to Mary's case... Walk me through the kind of person who would have done that. And and also, you know, one of the retired East Point detectives thinks that she could still be alive somewhere. What's yeah. the likelihood of that? People do disappear. I mean, it happens. I mean, we've all seen stories of kids that get abducted when they're nine and 20 years later show up. Sometimes it happens with adults, but we have to we have to set aside the um, the great storytelling component and and work backwards. What what would her motive have been to do that? Um, is there any evidence that she was developing an alter identity? And people do, you know, it happens. But usually there's a reason. They're into something. Um, they want to get away from certain people, or they are stealing money, and they want to be able to hire. There's a reason. She seemed to be a happy lady doing the business alive. She had tons of people wooing her. She had everything kind of going for her. And the you have to buy into a bunch of other conspiracies, like things going on in the bank or something, to make that make sense. It doesn't mean that it isn't so. But anytime I think about this, I remember when I went and saw JFK, the Oliver Stone version of JFK. My friend and I went to see it together, a three-hour movie of all this big conspiracy. And as we walked out of the theater, my friend who's a historian, he's not a psychologist, he goes, well, to believe that, you have to take the word of mobsters and criminals over Supreme Court justices and police officers and so forth. And that kind of put it in a nutshell. So I think about that when I'm looking at this, not because I want to be right for right's sake. I want to be right. You know, that's the whole point. So I... I think it's highly improbable that she's still living. I think what happened, I think this is in my report, she was the unlucky one to wander through the parking lot after that guy had attempted to abduct another woman. Almost certainly it's the same guy. He had a plan. He wanted to use her. He wanted to take advantage of her. Whether he killed her immediately drove off with her. There's the stuff with the credit card receipts in, in North Carolina. Lots of possibilities there. He wasn't looking for a wife. So the probability of her still being alive is, in my opinion, zero. So what is, what is somebody after? You know, if you're just after sex, there's no point in going to a prostitute cost you money. There's no point in abducting somebody and potentially go to jail. I mean, it can't just be about that. It has to be something else a person is trying to say, to communicate, to, to acquire. 
I, th I think it's safe to operate on an assumption that this was probably a sexual crime. It didn't want her money. It didn't want her car. Um, unless you want to go into the banking conspiracy stuff, which I've already said I think is unlikely. So what I think he wanted was to draw out his ability to play the game. So there are checkers players and there are chess players. They're both games. They both involve strategy. Chess takes a long time. And he was a chess player. And that comes with experience and time. So his ability to manipulate her, which he probably did with minimal violence, the blood that was on the car was very minimal. I think she removed her own clothing. That's why it was folded. Why would he fold it? That doesn't make any sense. Um, here, take your clothes off and give them to me. I'll fold them up. If she was out, and he, why would he fold them up and then put them back in the car? Most logical thing is, you know, take your underwear off. She did. Puts it in the seat. The whole time she's thinking, I'm going to get out of this. And he probably was telling her that. It's part of that manipulation. So that's a that's a patient guy. That's a guy who wants to to manipulate in a very different way than what the other perpetrator was. The, the other perpetrator was sort of the two-year-old manipulator. And my son told me once when he was about five, he was mad. He says, I won't let you play with my toys. Okay, he was using the only skills he had as a two-year-old. The shot with little perpetrator is a perpetrator who is using far more skills and manipulated it as long as he wanted. Mary's was likely skilled, as in mm -hmm. had done this before, oh, yeah. knew what to do. Oh, yeah. And likely went on to maybe do it after her. Almost certainly. People don't stop. The North Carolina piece is kind of in the same arena as the uh, CNS Bank stuff. I think there's more evidence that she possibly was there, but it's the, it's the chess game. Let's just assume that he did take her there. Um, there's some problems with it in terms of timing. Uh, the car being seen and the credit cards and or the credit card receipts and so forth. But let's just, for sake of argument, say that he did take her there. I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna let you go. You know, just calm down. Do what I say. You, you gotta think. These perpetrators build up to this place. There's this what's called the trolling phase where they're out there hunting. There, and it's that's the thrill. Now it's you. As opposed to the second guy where that trolling phase is super short. I'm going to get somebody right now. Get them. Fram. So it's like a kid that goes into the Chuck E. Cheese pizza and wolfs down five pieces of pizza. As opposed to you and I going to Fogo de Chow or someplace and leisurely eating a three-hour lunch. The shot with little perpetrator was the three-hour lunch guy. So even if he had raped her already... He may have to rug it out simply to manipulate further. In his head, he ain't going nowhere. But oh, I just, you know, you know, I can't let you go right now because they'll know it was me or whatever. I, you know, just trust me. I'm gonna get you out of this. Which would explain why, if she was there, why she sat quietly in the car. He told her to. What power is that? What about her? Do you think that her car had been moved, or do you think that was just a... I don't know, and I, I could be persuaded either way. I, I proposed in my conclusions that it's possible that his that the car was never gone. Um, there were, I think, five cars in the parking lot. 
That's not that many. Um, it was a strip mall. It's not like it is today where there's massive parking lots. So a security guard probably would have noticed, probably. But one of the problems with, with memory is we, we don't have any, remem- any purpose to remember most of the stuff that happens during the day. So what happens when something salacious happens like this, and it's not that people are lying deliberately for sure, but, but the fact is we try to make, our brains are constantly trying to make sense out of the world, that we fill in gaps all the time. And, oh, yeah, there was a blue car next to me. Well, it might have been blue, it might have been green, it might have been a truck, it might have been a van. But because the idea of van was introduced, it's very easy for that little piece of your, there's literally a structure in your brain called the reticular formation that does this for you. It's constantly taking all the information from the world and making it cohesive. It's why illusionists are, are so fascinating to us because we know they didn't make the elephant disappear, but they take advantage of how our, our brain is constantly filling in gaps and sleight of hand is a little bit too cheesy, but that's what's happening. You know, take a coin here and I grab it. Well, I've grabbed it. You, you didn't see me grab it, but your brain says I did because why else would I grab like that? Same principle. So it's possible that those security guards doing their business, doing a good job, and oh no, I know it wasn't there. Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Okay, five cars isn't that many. It's very possible they're right, um, but it's equally plausible that it was there the whole time and just wasn't seen. So I could go either way with that. It sure makes it easier to answer a lot of questions if it never left the parking lot. I think it's probable it did leave the parking lot because of the extra miles that were on the odometer. Her husband was a very meticulous record keeper guy. Um, There was dust found on it and so forth, which today would be wonderful. We could scrape all that stuff up and find out exactly where they went. But um, I think it's probable that they didn't leave. But unlike the Diane Shields case, this guy knew how he was going to get away. So I'll conduct you in your car. We're coming back here. We're going to get in my vehicle and take off or whatever. Whether she was still with him or not, nobody knows for sure. So let's just for playing devil's advocate, let's say that he abducted her in her car, took her away, did what he was going to do. What happens next? He brings her back and mm-hmm. takes her in his car? That's what I think happened. Mm-hmm. Or in another vehicle of some sort, whether it was his or a stolen car or whatever. Nobody knows. That's part of what makes experienced perpetrators hard to catch. Because they do... It isn't just so simple as I'll steal a car. If you steal a car from two blocks away from the crime, police don't put the two and two together. If you steal a car from a mile and a half away, use it for 24 hours and dump it in some other state, that may never get put together with your crime. So whether it was his own vehicle, a stolen car, a borrowed car, who knows? It could have been anything, but this is what makes this a very deceiving, devious perpetrator. Her car was not taken all the way to North Carolina. I don't believe Based so, on no. mileage. No. Okay. I think that's there's no evidence that happened. So tell me in your opinion, why are these two cases in the 60s? Why would these two cases be so hard to solve? And then take me into today and why are they hard to solve, you know, okay. 40, 50 years later? That's one of the best questions you should ask. 
here's my theory. You've heard the old 48-hour thing, right? Well, it's not untrue, but it's like saying statistically people who have more birthdays live longer. It's a statistical truth, but there's a very good reason for it. It isn't birthdays that is causing you to live longer. You, you know, they come together. The 48-hour rule, um, most homicides are committed by inexperienced people who are going to get caught. So Tony Biello, who used to I think he's still with APD. He was a lieutenant when he was in the homicide office. He told me one time, he said, most of the homicides I see are one bad guy shooting another bad guy. So out of the 560 homicides a year or whatever Atlanta had at the time, almost all of them were no-brainers. I mean, you don't have to be a master detective, and I'm not criticizing any detective. I'm just saying, you know who did it before you walked off the lot, probably. So what happens in homicide investigation, most homicides are that, and most homicide investigators are trained for that. You know, talk to the husband, talk to the neighbors, talk to the ex-boyfriends. You know, were they selling stuff? Were there drugs involved? I mean, there's this small handful of stuff. And within 48 hours, most of the time, even if somebody's not arrested, we know who did it. So it may take months to put a case together that can go to the DA, charges can be brought, but you ask any detective, any of the ones on our crew or any other ones, how often do you know who did it within the first 48 hours? They're going to say almost always. So investigators take a bunch of shortcuts because they know, oh, the husband did this. We know he did. Let's go get him. They don't investigate it thinking this is going to be a hard case. Well, after 48 hours, a week, two weeks, three weeks, now it's, oh, well, all of our suspects, all the usual suspects, any of them. Now what? Well, you can't go back and reinvestigate the crime scene because it's already messed up. And that's what I call atypical homicides. The reason that case was hard to solve then was almost certainly in part that situation. What makes it hard today is there's so many gaps in the puzzle we just don't have, and there's no way we can get it. We have one crime scene photo, Mary Shotwell Littles, just one. That's of her car, I think. <laughs> you know, not even two from the, the car from two angles. I mean, we've got one thing. Um, we've got 40-year-old statements and then revisions of statements, and we've already talked about some of the memory problems. So that's part of what makes it hard. The boogeyman does come out sometimes just randomly pick people. That doesn't happen very often. But when that happens, there's nothing logical to connect the perpetrator to the crime. Do you think um, in Diane's case, fiance, and in Mary's case, her husband, not plausible suspects? Like I say, even the most inept investigators would have turned those rocks over pretty carefully. And one of the things that tends to show up over time, especially in the old days, if somebody, if an investigator knew Somebody did it, but they couldn't prove it. It would be in the case somewhere. We know it was the husband because blah, blah, blah. Then show up. Now, they don't do that so much anymore because of all, there's all kinds of reasons why it doesn't. But, but back in the old days, it did. You would, it would have been in that case. Um, the fact that he bought some Braves tickets or something, I think those were all red herrings. Um, and again, we have to look at motive. Why would... Why would they have done it? And it isn't that it's impossible. 
Could they have hired somebody to kill him? Yeah. Could could they have just done it because they decided they didn't want to be around him? Well, they were sociopaths. Well, yeah. But I don't see any evidence of any of that. So my statistics students, I always tell them that all things are possible. Space junk could fall on your head when you walked out the building, but it probably won't. You know, so to say, is it possible? And this happens in court a lot. Attorneys, mm-hmm. is it possible? No. <laughs> no. It, it, that's not the answer that they want. They want the statistical possibility. But there's a difference between possibility and probability. And it's just, it's just not probable. So I, I think it's a very unfortunate turn of events for these two women. I mean, that's the sad part is they're just two people doing the business of life that was stolen from them. And that's heartbreaking. And, you know, unfortunately, we all cross paths with people that do that kind of stuff. We just don't know it, thank goodness. Do you think either of these cases will ever be solved? This is the oldest case I've ever worked in cold case. Because of its age, I think it's unlikely. Um, Even if somebody confess, there's a difference between solving in the sense of somebody goes to jail and solving, aha, we know. I think it is, it is not beyond the realm of possibility, especially because of your program, um, that some family member, and again, I think this might have come up in our other meetings, some family member sees the show, like, oh, you know, Uncle Larry used to talk about, yeah, it could happen. Is anybody gonna go to jail? No, I think that's unlikely. Greg gave me a lot to think about. Maybe they're not connected. Maybe Mary and Diane were killed by two different people for unrelated reasons. Maybe there are coincidences. Was the task force's voice of reason right? Or did a confession years ago already tell investigators what really happened to Mary Shotwell Little? It is detailed. Detailed. Naming names, naming places. You know, when you get back and you read that, you can see where that scenario comes from and would work. Five Roses is produced, narrated, and reported by Jessica Knoll. Joe Flaccari co-produced Five Roses. Philip Kish is the digital director. Aaron Peterson is the executive producer. Brendan Keefe is our TV investigator. Joshua Coates created the graphic. And special thanks to Annie Campbell. Five Roses is produced for WXIA-TV, 11alive.com, and Tegna Media as part of our ongoing digital series, Gone Cold. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Gone Cold. And we have a Facebook page you can join and discuss the podcast and other cold cases. You can read more cold case stories and listen to our upcoming monthly podcast by visiting 11alive.com backslash gone cold.